this is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. So, uh, all right, guys. Hey, the first issue I want to talk about goes back to a conversation we had a few weeks back on the pod about war movies. And we had talked to Tom Englehart of Tom Dispatch about what movies he thought were most realistic or were uh, most profound artistically about America's contemporary wars. And I've been a critic of most of the movies about the war on terror or what we used to call the war on terror. And this week I watched um, 12 Strong and uh, hadn't seen it yet, but my son really likes action movies and, you know, he's been with me the last several nights. So we were watching some Netflix, and so we uh, we ordered 12 Strong, and, and I watched it. And, of course, 12 Strong is about the first ODA, or Special Forces A-Team, that uh, landed in Afghanistan in October of 2001 and then worked with uh, Afghan warlords in the Northern Alliance in order to seize the city in northern Afghanistan of Mazar-al-Sharif, which is still contested by the Taliban nearly 18 years later. The thing about 12 Strong that got me is, and by the way, it's well acted and it's, it's got really good special effects. If you're looking for an action movie with almost no depth, it's perfect. And I think most Americans are looking for exactly that, an action movie with no depth. But this is not a complex movie. It's another movie that essentially tells the same story and it goes something like this. Soldiers who fight next to each other are brothers in arms who will do anything for one another absent any political context and that's admirable on some level because it's true on some level but where is the director or the screenwriter who's going to add the complexity of a platoon from 1986 or a deer hunter from 1978 that took critical looks at the vietnam war and did more than just tell an exciting story Um, i haven't found that movie yet because just about every movie that's been made about the war on terror has been platitude after platitude. There is no broader anti-war message. There's no broader message about what we're doing in Afghanistan. It's just a heroic portrayal, a 12-man special forces team doing their job. And I'm not saying there's no room in the cultural space for that, but I'm just wondering when that other movie is going to come out. But there are a few problems with this movie, and one of them stands out. The movie depicts the way the captain of an ODA team, a special forces team, links up with an Afghan warlord in the Northern Alliance named General Dostum. Now, General Dostum is an Uzbek from the north of Afghanistan who eventually, in like 2014, became the vice president of Afghanistan. Just to give you a little idea of of, uh, the complexity of our Afghan war. Now, the movie portrays him as a hero, as a rugged Afghan individualist who holds his men together through the force of his own courage. And some of that's probably true. You know what the movie doesn't mention at all? That General Dostum was and is a warlord and a war criminal, responsible for the torture and in some cases execution of hundreds if not thousands of 
surrendered prisoners. There is no mention of that. There is no mention of the fact that before the movie takes place, he was a war criminal. And after the movie takes place, he becomes even more of a war criminal as he literally suffocates Taliban prisoners in uh, the bottom of a jail and then also in uh, shipping containers, which is well documented by the International Criminal Court. Now, there were a couple of good parts of the movie. Uh, the wife of the warrant officer who uh, pulls his retirement paperwork in order to deploy to Afghanistan, she, um, she refuses to talk to him, and she never apologizes, and she's genuinely angry with him, which I found realistic because wives aren't always patriotic in the way we want them to be. Sometimes they're just angry, and they're allowed to be. And there was one small line at the end of the movie that gave at least a hint to the fact that uh, Afghanistan might be a complex endeavor. General Dostum, the warlord and international criminal, says to the young captain of the Special Forces A-Team, he says, if you leave, we will consider you cowards, and if you stay, we will consider you the enemy. And he's talking about the Americans more generally. And this is sort of after the climactic scenes and courage of the movie. And he essentially says, if you leave, we'll think you were cowards for leaving, but if you stay, we'll consider you occupiers and we'll attack you. And it was really the only intelligent line of the movie. And I think most Americans who watch it wouldn't even notice, but I was desperately hoping for something intelligent and complex. That was the closest thing I got. So now America enters the 18th year of this war, coming in October, and we've yet to make a single critical film about the war in Afghanistan, which is the longest war in American history. And, and, and I will tell you, that disturbs me. And we've talked about this before in the pod. It absolutely disturbs me that there hasn't been a single artistic portrayal of the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan, because most Americans just do not care. They don't care. They are not interested in these wars. There was an, a brilliant photo in uh, the Pentagon was giving a briefing on the war in Afghanistan a couple weeks back, and there's a general at the podium who's going to tell them about the new strategy and how great it's going. Of course, it's not. And there's four journalists in the room in about 50 empty seats. Now, if Stormy Daniels' lawyer was giving a press conference, you can bet your ass that those seats would have been full of asses. But because it's the war in Afghanistan, no one gives a shit. And why should they give a shit? And our culture reflects that. And 12 Strong, which was an exciting movie, well-acted, great special effects, is another example of the apathy of the American people and the apathy of the American intellectual and cultural community. And, and so I, I guess my point is I was disappointed again, and I expect to be disappointed in the future. I read a article about that movie a while ago that talked about the um, horseback charge that Chris Hemsworth and his guys made in that movie while shooting their rifles from the right. backs of their horses. On automatic, apparently, as well, which is strange because our M4s don't fire on automatic. But. No, no, no. Um, but they asked the author about that, and is that does anything at all in the actual story of those guys give evidence to say this charge actually happened? And he said no. As, as it was filmed, nothing like that actually happened in his book. But yet it got added in there. And I would imagine that... that Similar other artistic pushes 
really help those kind of movies depict exactly what you're talking about in terms of the stereotypical brother and brother struggle, the universality of being at war, without actually talking about anything more. And again, we're, we want to believe that our special forces guys are absolutely indestructible. Doing things like that, that sits in the hearts and minds of people like your kid, it, it, it can be really powerful. Absolutely. And, you know, and what's the point of embellishing a story that's already so exciting? I mean, the book is exciting. The story is exciting. It's really phenomenal what this original 12-man team did. Why do we have to embellish it? Why do we have to have them firing their rifles on automatic with accuracy from the backs of horses when they neither fired their rifles from the backs of horses, nor did their rifles have the capacity for automatic, nor if they did fire them, could they be accurate? Yep. What's the point? I don't... I don't understand why you would make those three terrible errors, because you're lying to the American people. Our soldiers have done enough heroic things to make 50 movies about the wars we've fought. So why embellish it? Who does it serve? I, I, to me, it's a, it's a dereliction of duty on the part of these screenwriters. It's, it's, uh, I know that there's always been artistic license in movies, but I just feel like it's inappropriate, especially when it ignores the war criminal at the center of the movie. Yeah. The, the movie could have still told the same story, but it could have hinted at the fact that, you know what, some of our allies in Afghanistan are bad dudes. And that would have been the kind of nuance that America needs when it watches war movies. Yeah, it's, 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 it's just propaganda. I, 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 unless I have a good feeling or somebody's told me they recommend a movie, I just don't even try anymore. It's just, it's not worth my time. So, uh, my uh, only headline for today is uh, some stuff about military recruiting. Um, a, a little bit of a lead-in into that, some recent uh, Im immigrant recruit news. Um, there was a recent headline that around 40 foreign-born recruits for the Army has been discharged. It's unclear to me whether the recruits had anything to do at all with the Trump administration's policies towards immigrants. Um, but it could, given the, the closure of the Customs and Immigration Offices near U.S. Army basic training spots. Um, it's possible that these discharges came just from background check issues or simply that the recruit didn't attend basic training within three years, which also legally mandates discharge. Um, the program, uh, it's known by a weird acronym, M-A-V-N-I, Military Accessions Vital to National Interest. Now, the program itself is no longer accepting applications, but there are about 1,200 guys that are still in line for their background checks. So, and truthfully, the fact that it's no longer accepting applications is probably more related to issues trying to vet those foreign recruits than anything that Trump has chosen to do, as the Obama administration suspended the program originally due to background check concerns. There were rumors that a recruit with an unacceptable background um, possible, possibly a terrorist or someone related to terrorists, was admitted despite the thorough vetting procedures, and that's why they halted it. Um, but even in the absence of that program, all the other branches have continued recruiting foreign-born troops. Um, the Marine Corps currently has a pool of 800 of them, who they're guys that already have their green cards, and I, they're just waiting for the background check stuff to do, and the Air Force and Coast Guard also do that. I mentioned all that. It, it's not too pertinent to what I'm going to talk about today, but I wanted to make sure you guys heard about it because there's been a lot of information about whether or not those recruits 
are actually part of the Trump administration's animosity towards immigrants. So U.S. military recruiting. I found an interesting study from the American Journal of Public Health, which asked the question, should we end military recruiting in high schools as a matter of child protection and public safety? The study uses an analysis of the Garfield School PTA in Seattle, the, the Garfield District in Seattle, fighting against recruiters' presence in their children's schools. First, uh, a little background. Um, when No Child Left Behind was signed by President Bush um, in the beginning of 2002, it mandated that mili military recruiters have free access to public schools. It required recruiters to also to have access to student contact information by request. Uh, the new military recruitment requirements um, are required for kids to receive federal funds. Um, and as far as the access goes, and it's kind of a weird rule, schools must provide military recruiters the same access to secondary school students that is provided to post-secondary educational institutions or to pr prospective employers. In other words, colleges can come and employers can come, and that means recruiters can come too. Whatever rules that the colleges are abiding by, the recruiters have to abide by as well, but they can't just create a blanket exception where they don't allow recruiters to come at all. Um, the only exemption to that specifically in the law is if you're attending a private high school with a religious exemption. So assuming that's not you, the military has a right to your student's name, address, and phone number. I remember as a teenager getting random phone calls from recruiters of all the branches long before I ever visited a recruiter's office. Now, parents could object and withhold their students' information upon request, asking that the information is not released without prior author authorization, but they can't simply say recruiters can't get their, inf their info. Now, whether this bears out at most schools is, is really debatable. I assume it has to do more with how friendly the area where the school sits is to the military. If there are any parents listening, I would love to hear any experiences you've had with recruiters and whether or not you were actually informed that you could opt out of providing your kids info. Now, in the world of free access for recruiters, they must be given access in, the, or uh, hold on, I missed, I jumped back there a little bit. Um, for some, for example, some schools allow extensive access, permitting recruiters to set up information tables, visit classrooms, and freely approach students anywhere on campus. That was my high school. They were there all the time. Um, other schools permit a lesser degree of access, and some even further restrict access by forbidding information tables, requiring appointments for poor recruiters can meet students, and otherwise limiting access to campus. Um, despite these variations in school policy, schools are allowed to place as many or as few as they wish on military recruiters as long as recruiters are treated the same way that other post-secondary recruiters are treated. Um, again, for any parents listening, I, I'd like to know how often you've seen recruiters at your kid's school and do you see them in other places? Um, ask your school, can the recruiters show up unannounced? Are they given preferential treatment compared to other recruiters? Now, let's talk a little bit about what the study mentioned in terms of risks to kids. Adults in the active military service are reported to experience increased mental health risks, including stress, substance abuse, and suicide. And the youngest soldiers, soldiers consistently show the worst health effects, suggesting military service is associated with disproportionately poor health in this population. Um, 
It's also important to note that the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of the Child, which have specific uh, child soldier provisions in it, is a treaty that we have never ratified. You know who we share that, that unfortunate uh, connection with? Somalia. Let me guess. <laughs> I was going to say Israel. <laughs> <laughs> um, but those are not the, uh, the only objections. Um, persons who have not attained the age of 18 years are not compulsory re compulsorily recruited into the armed forces. Essentially, they're asking us to end selective service completely because the idea of that, it completely goes against any notion of trying to protect children from our warmongering ways. Um, now, I wanted to mention a little bit about the disadvantages a student, let alone their parents, have in dealing with recruiters from the military. Remember, they start as young as age 14, and I know that, that they can be a considerable amount younger to join uh, the delayed enlistment program, which is you're not yet joined the military, but you have found a slot. You have an MOS slot and a ship date, but you actually haven't signed your contract yet. Although adults in the active military service, um, hold on, hold on, there it is, okay. Um, a study of mental disorders in the U.S. military found the highest rates of all disorders, um, including alcohol abuse, anxiety syndromes, depression, and post-traumatic systems disorder among the youngest cohort. Um, another study found that the younger soldiers, that younger soldiers had 30 to 60% more substance abuse disorders than did older soldiers, and young women in particular had the highest incident of attempted suicide or self-inflicted injuries. The youngest group of veterans also experienced a 26% increase in suicides from 2005 to 2007, hence where we are today with our suicide rate. We also know that the youngest active duty military personnel engage in the riskiest sexual behaviors, and almost one-third of first births to active duty females to women uh, uh, are, excuse me, are to women younger than 21 years of age. Um, so just to re we're getting into the fanciest ways of saying the dumb shit that kids do, teenagers do, young adults do, but now they do it with a paycheck and an assault rifle in hand. These are all consequences on the well-being and long-term health of placing a, a child, a teenager, in a position of authority without any real-life experience, continually going after poor recruits, and recruits of color, given their high numbers uh, over presence in U.S. society, recruiters are able to push a, a sort of backdoor draft as the benefits to military service will be much more advantageous to poor people or people of color. So aside from official visits to our schools, how do recru recruiters pursue our kids? These are a couple examples from the U.S. Army School Recruiting Handbook. Quote, recruiters, like infantrymen, must move, shoot, and communicate. The objective is to assist uh, recruiters with programs and services so they can effectively penetrate the school market. Be so helpful and so much a part of the school scene that you are in constant demand. Attend athletic events at the high school. Deliver donuts and coffee to the faculty once a month. Offer to be a timekeeper at football games. Um, dress up and wear your dress blues on Martin Luther King Jr.'s Day uh, and participate in school events commemorating the holiday. These behaviors that I'm talking about here, uh, they're remarkably similar with behavior psychologists characterize as predatory grooming, which is defined as the process by which a child is befriended by a would-be abuser 
in an attempt to gain the child's confidence and trust, enabling to get the child to acquiesce to abusive activity. In, uh, before they in, did, did these rules in Seattle, recruiters chaperoned dances, tutored kids, coached football teams, ride buses to and from school, all in an effort just to get near kids. In other parts of the state, they volunteer to teach gym classes, sponsor climbing walls, bring large armored vehicles to campuses to create a sensation, and infuse counseling offices with the ASVAB. The, the ASVAB is the test you take before you enter the military to assist young people in making career choices. Nothing in the manual advises recruiters to reveal the risks their prospects face, neither the physical hazards on the battlefield nor the psychological trauma and its after effects. So let's say you're a parent and you've opted your child out of giving personal information to recruiters. Does that mean that the recruiters stop at that point? Nope, not a fucking chance. Despite the privacy provisions, the Army Manual instructs high school recruiters to intentionally circumvent the law. Quote, lead generation is what makes prospect, uh, prospecting possible. Prospecting. <laughs> Asking a school official for a student directory is one example of lead generation. Be creative if the school doesn't release a list. Consider, for example, contacting the company that produces senior photos. Man, I'd be super, so fucking pissed if somebody did that to my kid. If necessary, have your future soldiers, guys that have already signed up in delayed enlistment or maybe have already joined, and have them look through a yearbook, identify their friends and acquaintances with a phone number, an email address, or any other information they can provide. Um, use the phone book itself. Uh, this kind of information gathering can establish contact with an otherwise hard-to-find lead. Establishing strong relationships with centers of influence, such as yearbook photographers, school officials, and future soldiers, ensure you have a constant, reliable source of leads. So, here's the best part of the story. We got through the shitty part, here's the best part. So what did this school do to fight back against the presence of recruiters among their children? First, recruiter visits were limited to one per semester. Visits had to be notified in advance, and recruiters lost the ability to walk through the school on their own to speak with students. The school district also invited counter-recruiters who were on site to provide information on the enlistment contract, the realities of military life, um, sorry, hold on one second, um, and alternatives to the military um, for funding college. Ultimately, their efforts were restricted only to, their, uh, to the Seattle school districts. It did expand to the entire city, but it didn't make it any further than that. Um, they found that many school districts didn't inform parents of the, their privacy rights, um, subjecting some students to aggressive military recruiting at home as well as at school. So here's my bottom line. I know, I know that was a lot to digest. Take recruiters seriously. The, 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 it, it's not that the recruiters are so good at their job. It's that our kids have no experience. It's that what they hear sounds good to them, and they, the, the blanks that the recruiter leaves in those slots allows their lies and things to get, to get through. Don't count on your student being able to see through the bullshit on their own and ask them directly if they've been spoken with or called by recruiters. Meet with your kids' teachers and the administrators and ask them a shit ton of questions about recruiter access and if the school is doing anything to promote that access. Find out when the recruiters will be at the school and talk with them directly. I wouldn't advocate starting a fight with an infantryman recruiter on any means, but politely let them know that you're paying attention to their activities and, and how you feel about it. 
chat with other parents about their experiences. And do remember that recruiter activity varies greatly from area to area. My little recruiting office in the Dallas, my hometown, and granted it was the biggest town in my county, the town being 12,000 people, but it had two recruiters. One worked the little town, and then one worked the surrounding much smaller towns. I've also been to ones here in the Portland area in Gresham where there are literally 15 guys in one office, in their Class B uniform, foaming at the mouth for somebody to walk in the door. So it, it, you're not always going to see the same makeup of recruiters in different areas. And the very last thing, and this is, I think is the most important, if your child is unrelenting in their goal to join the military, which is exactly where I was as a young man, remember that they still need your support. They need you to be there, and they may have their own reckoning later on in life. That doesn't mean that they don't, you know, when they come to it later, they still need your support. Also, just so you know, delayed enlistment contracts can be voided. Your, if, if your kid is in a delayed enlistment and they don't want to join the military, they change their mind, they have not actually joined yet. They have a slot. And recruiters will try to talk you out of it, but they have to let the kid out of it because it's not an actual go-to-basic training contract. So what do you think about that, Danny? You know, I was in the same position as you. I, I, I was an unrelenting advocate for my own enlistment and then eventually my own slot at West Point. No one could have talked me out of it. You're right that these kids still need their parents' support. And this is a public policy issue that you're talking about. This is not just a family issue. You know, the military sort of um, holds an incredibly interesting space in our society right now where they're on such a pedestal that no one wants to question them. And no one wants to hold them accountable for, for really anything. But the reality is that what they're peddling, okay, is uh, a career choice. And in some ways, a really excellent career choice with a lot of great benefits. But it's also an extremely dangerous career choice, not just physically, but emotionally. And so like every other dangerous aspect of our society, the military should be regulated the same way that cigarettes are regulated and alcohol and high trans fat foods. I mean, there are many risks to the health of your child and the military is just one of them. This is not to say the military is evil nor to say that the military is not a viable opportunity. It's to say the military is a risk with significant uh, health indicators, negative health indicators, and it has to be taken into account. And we, we cannot treat recruiters so special that they become gym teachers or chaperones on buses because yeah. that puts them on a pedestal that encourages people to join without perhaps taking into account positives and the negatives and, 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 and the the check sheet of ways and means and risk and reward. Um, so I, I'm with you on this. I think this is an important story that you brought up. Uh, we don't talk about it a lot. Recruiting is a nasty business. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a slimy business. If you ever listen to a recruiter talk, it's, you know, it's a sales pitch. And I suppose that's true of, of any recruiter in any industry, but it's particularly true in the military because it is very difficult to convince kids to join, especially in a time of war. We've been at war for nearly 18 years now. And so convincing kids to enlist in a time of war is a difficult job. And I don't envy the job of the recruiter because it's a very difficult one. You know, how do you convince kids to, to, to earn $20,000 a year while maybe dying for a war that no one cares about? That's a tough question. 
I mean, that's that's not that's not an easy sell. But you're right that there is a backdoor draft, and the backdoor draft is economic. Who is in the military? But more importantly, who is not in the military? I'll tell you who's not in the military. The sons of doctors, the sons of lawyers, they are not in the military, by and large. There are exceptions, but the upper class of a professional Americans earning six figures a year are not sending their children to the military. Congressmen, by and large, are not sending their children to the military, nor are senators, nor are major public officials. And so this is a hard sell. How do we get kids to want to be in the military but also maintain strict controls on the recruiters because they are peddling a dangerous, dangerous job, just like cigarette companies are peddling a dangerous habit? And so I don't see why there shouldn't be regulation on this. And that's not a knock at the military. It's just a basic public health concern. No, it it, it, it needs to be seen in that light. And I had never heard about any of these things before I started actually doing the research. I didn't know that the changes that Bush, the Bush administration made so that recruiters had that easy access when I joined and when you joined. You know, it... it, it um, also, uh, recruiters have a very quick revolving door. Not, not. I don't mean that specifically. Like, <sighs> recruiting is a tough job. Even with as hard as most jobs in the military are, recruiting is a tough job. But most of guys do two, two and a half, three-year tours, and then they go back to whatever their regular job is. And that means that there's always a changing group of faces at your local recruiter's office. And so if you did have an issue or wanted to confront someone, chances are good that by the time you had the information, that recruiter has moved on to a different part of their career. So establishing trust with any of them over a longer period of time, especially with maybe teachers, that, okay, I have a recruiter here and he is honest, it, 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 it just doesn't happen with the timeline of their, uh, of their tours. Yeah, as soon as you get close to one recruiter, he's leaving and a new guy's coming. Yep. And in a lot of ways, that's the nature of all military jobs. But it's particularly nefarious in the case of the recruiter because the recruiter is a member of the community, for better or for worse. Yeah. And we have to take that into account. My last headline and our last headline for the day involves the Supreme Court. Oh, the Supreme Court. So normally we talk about veterans issues almost exclusively here on the pod, military, foreign policy veterans. But I, I want to talk about the Supreme Court just for a few minutes. Justice Anthony Kennedy, who had been the swing vote on the Supreme Court, half the time he voted with the conservative constructionists and half the time he voted with the liberals. He was well-known as a swing vote and as a voice of reason sometimes in otherwise difficult circumstances in a very partisan court. He was known as a swing vote. He will be replaced by someone that Donald Trump chooses. It sounds like it might be a man named Mr. Kavanaugh. What we can be sure of is that whoever Donald Trump chooses will be as conservative as the most conservative justice on the court. And that puts certain major issues at risk. The court, since at least the time of Ronald Reagan, has been a 5-4 court, where five justices were generally conservative and four justices were generally liberal. But the good part was the swing justice 
on the conservative side, sometimes decided to side with the liberals on key issues. So there was a swing vote. This will be the first time since the 1970s that the court could likely have a ironclad five to four conservative majority. Now, this isn't just about politics, but I want to remind the listeners what issues are at stake here. What potential issues are at stake if the court becomes five to four in the favor of a very, very conservative bench of Republicans? Roe versus Wade, pro-choice protection rights to ensure that women have access to abortions. That could very well be overturned in the next year. Gay rights. In the last court, gay marriage became legal. Gays in the military became legal. Our society shifted in a direction of more progressive views towards homosexuality. That could be changed as well. But some of this is foreign policy related. What about domestic surveillance? What's going to happen if we have a conservative court that's willing to allow the government unlimited rights of domestic surveillance? As we found, the government has had almost unlimited rights of domestic surveillance, even without our permission. Yeah. The court may put that into law. How about Gitmo? Do you think that a 5-4 to four conservative court is going to look kindly on any efforts to close Guantanamo Bay? Unlikely, especially with a president named Trump in the Oval Office. What about LGBTQ rights in the military? Really, in the last administration, the Obama administration, was the first time that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was overturned and gays could openly serve in the military, including transgenders. How will the court look upon this? And finally, what about drone assassinations? Not only of foreign citizens, but what about of American citizens? Like Anwar al-Awlaki and his son and his daughter, all three of whom were killed by American drones or American special forces raids, and they were American citizens born in the United States of America. Now, Obama was responsible for that execution, but the court never really took a hard look at it. Now, if the court were to look at it now, we know which way they'll go. They'll say, unlimited power to the president, unlimited power of assassination. The reason I bring up all these issues is to say, one could argue that the most influential thing that President Donald Trump will do in his four or eight years in office is appoint Supreme Court justices. They serve for life or until they retire. The people Donald Trump looked at, including his presumptive nominee, are young. They could conceivably serve on the court for 30 to 40 years. We are facing a generational problem with the Supreme Court that is unlike anything that happens in Congress. In the House of Representatives, if you don't like the House, two years later, everyone changes seats. If you don't like the Senate, six years later, everyone changes seats. But in the Supreme Court, you don't get to elect that guy, do you? The president appoints him for life. That's why elections matter. Now, I'm never going to convince the guy wearing the Trump that bitch shirt about Hillary Clinton, that guy at the rally is never going to come to my side. That's not who I'm talking to. He's lost. He's lost forever. But my friends who think politics doesn't matter, fuck it, why even care about politics, why even vote, those are the people I'm trying to reach. And the reason I'm trying to reach them is because voting for a president is perhaps the most influential thing you will do every four years. 
because that president has the potential and the ability constitutionally to put someone in charge who could change the reproductive rights of women and could change the marriage rights of homosexuals for a generation. A generation. And it's not just domestic policy, guys. It's foreign policy. The court needs to take a hard look at Gitmo. The court needs to take a hard look at domestic surveillance. And the court needs to take a hard look at drone assassinations overseas and domestically eventually. What should we expect from this court? I have a lot of reason for pessimism. The bottom line is this. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, stole a Supreme Court seat from Barack Obama and the Democrats, unconstitutionally so, using the rules of the Senate to essentially obviate the Constitution. The question now is whether the Democrats will fight back. I'm not hopeful that they will, because in their attempts to be amenable and to be constitutional, they tend to follow the rules and give in. Maybe that's the right thing. Maybe it's not. But if you care about the reproductive rights of women, if you care about the rights of homosexuals to marry and adopt children and live a normal life, it's time to call your congressman, kids. It's time to get out there on the street. It's time to bring out the pink pussy hats, march on Washington, and start talking. Because the thing is, this appointment to the Supreme Court is going to affect you for the rest of your adult life. Yeah, and there's, I mean, questioning whether Congress has been, has, did the appropriate AUMF for certain conflicts, um, corporate rights immensely in all kinds of different ways that I'm sure we can't even think about right now. Right. Um, uh, gun laws about making guns easier to access, fewer restrictions, fewer background checks, all, all that stuff. I mean, it, 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 it in just seeing the example that Trump has laid out so far with his first 18 months in office, there's nothing off the table. There's nothing in our society that he would not, that through through his justices that would, could not be crushed in that way, I don't think. so. You're right. You're right. I didn't even list all the issues. You brought up some really good ones. Yeah, who's going to look at the authorization of military force? Who's going to look at the president's ability to wage war unilaterally and indefinitely? I mean, that... This is the story of our time, and so that's why I'm talking about the Supreme Court. And I don't usually talk about domestic issues. I don't usually show my flag domestically when it comes to politics. But the bottom line is this is really scary. This is really scary. And you know what's even scarier? The next two oldest justices are Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's about 85, and uh, Justice Souter, who's about 80. All the Republicans are pretty young. Yeah. So the next two to retire and or, God forbid, die are also liberals. So in our lifetime, in the, even in the, in the case of an eight-year Trump administration, we could see legitimately a seven to two court in favor of conservatives. It would take at least a generation and a half to overcome that. Yeah. What about uh, FDR's move uh, to try to expand the court? Do you think that that could actually happen under a Democratic president? You know, I, I, it's a dangerous move. Um, FDR had his reasons for pushing that. He felt that the New Deal and overcoming the Depression was important enough to warrant such extreme measures. But it's really arguable whether that's constitutional for the president mm. to expand the court. Um, I'm really skeptical of such a move. 
because it would be really easy for the Republicans to paint that as illegal, and they might be right. Um, then again, desperate times call for desperate measures. So I, I'm not calling for a packing of the court, as it was called back in the 1930s. Um, but I do think that we need to go outside the normal system because we don't have the ability to influence the president. The president gets to essentially unilaterally make that choice. So the only check on this is Congress uh, because Congress ultimately has to provide a majority vote of 51, used to be 60, but now they only need 51 votes, um, to uh, ratify or to accept the justice. So I, I think our best bet right now is grassroots action with our senators. And there are a few swing senators out there. Um, if you live in Maine, pay attention to Republican Susan Collins. She's pro-life and she's a moderate Republican. If you live in Alaska, pay attention to Senator Lisa Murkowski. She's pro-life. She's a moderate Republican. If those two women flip to the Democratic side, Trump will not get the justice of his choice. Okay? In these moments, individual personalities start to matter. So, Maine people, Susan Collins, call her office. Alaska people, Lisa Murkowski, call her office. Okay? These are rational women who have the potential, not the guarantee, but the potential to flip and the potential to ask for a more... Uh, moderate justice, which is all we're asking for. No one expects a liberal justice from Donald Trump. No. We're asking for something moderate, something that doesn't take away the right of women to choose, something that doesn't take away the rights of homosexuals to marry and live as normal citizens in our society. Yep, that's all we want. It doesn't have to be somebody who's absolutely huge to the left. It, 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 I don't even know that it should be if we had our choice. No, it, it, I think what we're talking about is what we always talk about, which is it's time to be a citizen, folks. Citizenship is an obligation as well as a responsibility, and it is time to be a citizen. It's time Absolutely. to step up. And you, you you may have to do a little more than like something on Facebook or forward something on your email. Uh, this is a time for citizenship. This is probably the moment you're going to talk about with your children someday, about the most influential political moment in your life. It's probably right now. Okay, I hope it's right now because if it's not, then things are about to get way worse. Um, you're going to have to answer for the decisions that you take now. You're going to have to answer for the actions you take now to your grandkids. So step up. Be a citizen. Disagree with us if you want, but just be active. I don't expect that all our listeners are going to agree with everything we say. We're giving our opinion. That's all we're giving. We're not speaking for the Army. We're not speaking for the Department of Defense. We're speaking for ourselves. If you disagree with us, take action on the other side. But be a citizen. Be an engaged and informed citizen. That's what we're asking. That's what we're asking every single week on the pod. Yep, that's what our country needs now more than ever. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read. And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.